This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. So heads up, this is going to be a heavy show today, but it's also an important show. We're going to talk about some issues that often get swept under the rug or ignored. So last week, KEXP held a Music Heals Day dedicated to mental health. All day, our DJs read stories on air from listeners about how music or its song got them through their struggles of anxiety or depression. And we also played those songs. And on the podcast today, we are going to air some of those stories and songs. I can say with all certainty, music music saved my life. The West Seattle artist Zembu will talk about a song she wrote about her mother's suicide. Ultimately, it's an anthem that we are human after all and that we go through the ups and downs of life and that's okay and that it's okay to talk about it and seek connection and seek help. We'll also hear why Seattle has the highest recorded number of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the nation and the electric powwow group A Tribe Called Red will discuss how that issue comes up in their music. We had uh, all these women's voices you know, as a way to kind of to talk about the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls was to make a song for our sisters, for for all indigenous women. But first, let's check in with Seattle-based artist Sassy Black. She's now out with her third album. It's called Ancient Mahogany Gold. Catherine Harris-White is a singer, songwriter, and producer behind Sassy Black. She's a force in the Seattle arts community and beyond. You might know her from her work in the duo The Satisfaction. She's also a DJ, teaches music production in the region and in conferences around the nation. She's a trustee on the Pacific Northwest chapter of the Grammys. She's made acting appearances on the show's Broad City and the HBO series Vinyl. And the title of her new album is also the inspiration behind a new strain of cannabis oil sold at pot shops in the region. Ancient mahogany gold. It's in my heart and my soul. Let's my spirit fly up to the sky. It's my natural high. Ancient mahogany Sassy Black joins me now to talk about the album. Hello. Hi. So you've said that, um, I'm quoting you from Twitter here, this album is making me feel way different than I have about any album I've ever done. Oh, wow. That's a fun Twitter quote. (laughs) Why why is that? What's different about this album? Uh, There's so much different about it. I've never felt as comfortable as I did creating this record with any project I've ever created in, like, the history of me. And... um, it just feels jazzier and grungier and funkier and more trippy and more true to my essence and experience and expression as I am right now than any other project. Like all these other projects of my lineage and my beautiful babies of music have just like kind of led here and it, you know, keep going. But this is just like a really cool stopping point. So let's jump into your album uh, a little bit. And by a little bit, I mean, we're going to jump into the album. (laughs) So KEXP dedicated a day this week to listener stories of those struggling with depression and anxiety and music that got them through their struggles. And so the day is called Music Heals. And what I found interesting is that you seem to open up on this album about an emotional state. Um, You hear it in the opening track, Left of Right. I have this feeling that 
that life has no meaning It cuts me down so deep I can barely eat or sleep It ain't right, ain't right, ain't right Are you comfortable talking about where you were emotionally when you wrote this song? Yeah, so left or right is... I was working, I mean, I I just make music all the time. And it just came to me really clearly, you know? Like, I have this feeling that life has no meaning. And uh, I feel that way a lot. I felt that way a lot, you know? Politically, um, in this political environment, but then an actual environment, you know, you're like, well, what is it? You know, sometimes, you know, like heartbreak keeps you from feeling things, you know, like you start tucking things away or whatever, or you just become like a soldier of life or, you know, the music industry can be really difficult. So you're just getting rejection left and right, you know, <laughs> left and right, left and right, you know, so you're just trying to figure out where you're trying to go in life. And that's what I felt when I was writing that. Left or right. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, just opening up, you know, the entire album with this track that seemed very very open, very honest, very vulnerable in a way. And then I go on to see the track listings and I see another track on the album called Depression. But despite the title, it seems more like a self kind of pump up song. Like it, you just hear the music and it seems really happy. Dance, feel, heal, repeat. Dance, feel, heal, repeat. Dance, feel, heal, repeat. Natural therapy. Dance, and then you have this feel, other song repeat. on the album Dance, feel, kind of about self-appreciation called Antidote. So what do you in your daily life do to check in with yourself, you know, give self-care and do other things to spread, you know, love, you know, throughout the world? Yeah, that's really sweet. Uh, <laughs> you know, I um, I stretch every morning. I, I journal every day and journal every morning. I also have a daily mantra that I say every day. And um, that's really changed. I've been saying it for a year now, every single day. And, um, you know, it starts with I love myself. And it's really important for me to state that every day. I also laugh a lot and I talk to myself a ton. I sing when I'm walking down the street and I think it may freak out people, but I'm also also returning to the kid um, who's walking around trying to figure herself out in a new place because I moved here when I was 10 from Hawaii. And so like I returned to that kid that was going into the puberty and leaving things that she knew and trying to dive into society, you know, because um, then all of a sudden I'm in sixth grade and middle school is horrible, you know. Um, so just finding myself grounding in that. And then also, you know, the protective side of self, right, because I don't want people to bother me. So part of protecting myself as a kid was like letting myself look crazy as a young woman. You know, as I was developed really young. Um, at age 10, I was already 5'4 and developed as a woman. And that's 10, you know, I'm fifth grade and I'm having people hit on me and it cost me and like bug me in the street and stuff like that on the bus. I didn't feel safe, you know? So I started talking to myself aloud to be look crazy so that people wouldn't bother me. And so, you know, I find myself returning to that, but less to look crazy, but more to see myself. That's interesting. What would you, I mean, if we break down each of these songs, like what would you say, what is the song Depression, you know, what's the story you're telling there? Like what does that song mean to you? It's like me talking to myself. Like um, 
similar to like recognition from um, the last The Satisfaction record. Like I wrote that song because I was incredibly depressed. I was so sad. And I had to tell myself, I had to step outside of myself and tell myself that, you know, I would be recognized for my work eventually and for my contributions to things because at that time I didn't feel recognized or seen at all. And um, depression is the same thing. It's like, you know, I see what's best for you and everything you do and the infinite is possible. And like, you know, if you don't see that, you know, you need to spend more time and learn yourself, you know. Um, and it's, you know, what's it? Um, dance, feel, heal, repeat, you know, um, natural therapy, right? These are the things that we take for granted that we have that are therapeutic all the time. When you hear your favorite song and you dance to it, and you're like, oh, I feel so much better. What was I even stressed about? You know, so I have key songs that I go to to bring me up, you know, feel, right? Because the tendency to go numb and not deal with stuff, right? So just feel the pain, feel the process, feel the rejection, feel that and understand what it does to you, but also use it as fuel, and then, you know, oh, cool, heal, like allow yourself to heal, allow people to support you healing and repeat, you know. So it, it was like um, a message to myself and to anyone else. But the, also that depression is not just sitting like huddled under a table in a corner in your house, you know, hiding from the world. It's also functioning. Right. It's also being outside and talking to people and putting on a fake smile and stuff like that and saying that you're OK or that you're good every time. Oh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm great. You know, but you're not. You're just these are just words that you're, you know, muscle memory to say. And I love the last track, Black Excellence. Um, <laughs> and you've been described as an Afrofuturist musician, and this seems to kind of encompass this a little bit. Um, in this song, you say it's a common misconception that black people don't travel. I'm from space, I'm not from this earth. It's a common misconception that black people don't travel. I'm from space, I'm not from this earth, I'm not from this place, I'm from space, I'm not from this earth, I'm not from here, I'm not from this place, I'm from space. Mother Nature gave me birth, the sun and the sky, they make me feel fly. Space, I'm from space, I'm not from this earth, I'm from space. Can you talk more about this song? Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I when I've been called an Afrofuturist, which, you know, it's very cool. I, you know, I recognize that in order to be black, you have to think about the future. You know, you got to think about the next steps at all times because there's a lot of things that are um, oppressing us. I mean, you know, just in general, you know, we have to watch out, you know, we're around cops or we're around cars and stuff like I'm watching out. I don't like I want to look at a car. But I'm careful not to look into the car, you know, because I don't want people to think that I'm thinking about breaking into the car. These are things that I, you know, just just a thought process in general, you know, or how people judge me when I'm wearing certain clothes versus other things, different hairstyles and things like that. So I have to be a futurist. I have to think about the next step at all points in time. Um, this song, Black Excellence, is fun because, you know, I'm really bending notes with the music production and it bends in and out in a way that it, it still makes sense. But it also like. That dissonance kind of makes you rub your your forehead, your brow. You're like, ooh, it's like, ooh, it's a little tense, you know, but it also releases. So there's tension and release in the song, which I also think is a part of the black experience. I'm calling my ancestors. I'm giving thanks and praise. <laughs> this song's just so fun. You know, it comes from most, it really comes from the fact that I live in Seattle. 
and I used to live in Hawaii. And people were always like, there are black people there? And I'm like, I just told you that I live there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like, yes, I am a person though, you know? And so people will discount it. And um, I've been all over the world, right? So like I was in like Shanghai and Beijing and I would meet people who are studying or teaching abroad there from D.C. or whatever. I met a, a fan that was like, oh, my God, I th- never thought I'd see you, especially not in Beijing. You know, I was like, yeah, I was like, me neither, you know. But that is um, the misconception. I, it's really crazy because constantly, like, um, people of color are questioned about, oh, are there other people of color like your color there? Are there other diverse people there? That's crazy. And I was just like, why do people think that we can't travel? Like, I was also like, I'm black, you know, which means that I'm of the African diaspora. So, you know, I had to travel to get here. And then I'm also thinking like, you know, also (laughs) like East Coast to West Coast, like all this stuff. So it's really funny. So that's why it's like, you know, black people are everywhere. And I also think that um, black people for a long time have been discouraged to travel And that's why I'm like, we're everywhere. So just go anywhere. I've been to Germany, different places in Germany. And we've been there. I've been to Italy. You know, I've been all kinds of places. And a lot of places where people are like, oh, you're not going to be safe there, you know, as a black woman, as a black queer woman stuff. And I've been safe everywhere. I've gone, you know, and I've been to Portugal, you know, I've been to Cork, Ireland, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Which is like a little coastal city off of Ireland, you know, I've been to Glasgow, Scotland, you know, I've been all over and I've been fairly safe. I've been Australia, you know, so that's why I kind of like saying, you know, black people are everywhere, you know, and people are just like really like embracing that because, again, it goes into the things that are built um, society wise uh, in this nation yet, you know, like people of color don't have the opportunity to travel and that it's not within grasp, you know. I've been speaking with Sassy Black. Her new album, Ancient Mahogany Gold, was released on Friday. Thanks for joining us today and congrats on the new album. Thank you. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I want to share an interview I did last week about an epidemic that's been largely ignored in our country. It's the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. That's the song Sisters by the First Nations electric powwow duo called A Tribe Called Red. They've written about the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in their music. And this is an issue. Last year, the Seattle Indian Health Board published a study showing that Seattle had the highest number of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the nation. This year, the state of Washington passed a bill to address the issue. And this week, the Seattle City Council adopted a resolution to address the crisis as well. Abigail Echohawk is Chief Research Officer at the Seattle Indian Health Board and has been behind these efforts. She joins us today to talk about her work. Also joining us today is Toolman and Bear Witness from A Tribe Called Red. Welcome, everyone. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. So murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, Abigail, why is this such a prevalent issue? This is a prevalent issue, just not in Seattle and Washington, but really across North America and South America as a direct result of the colonization that happened in this land. This crisis wasn't something that existed on the land I'm on right now, the land of the Coast Salish people, until 600 years ago. And so we have to recognize that our women were once safe, and we will make sure that they are safe again. And so what we are addressing is the effects of the use of sexual violence 
making our women going mur- missing, making them be murdered. Um, and that is being perpetuated by systems who no longer want our people on this land. And so we really see this as a crisis that didn't start 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but we're looking at more than 500 years ago. So this is an on, I mean, ongoing, we're centuries we're talking about. Absolutely. And we're really talking about when I go out into the community, I hear stories from great, 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 great grandmothers as I listen to the stories of their relatives who have followed in the same path when they've gone missing and been murdered. And so this is something that is affecting families, just not in one generation, but multiple generations. I mean, when we when we talk about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, who are the murderers? Who are those that are capturing these women and girls? So the perpetrators are a variety. And it really does taking a look at the fact because our women are invisible, because police don't do the same kind of investigations when we are people of color, when we are indigenous people, because we are invisible in the communities and there is no accountability to indigenous folks, both living in the United States and in Canada, we have found that perpetrators have found this out. And here in the United States, United States specifically, there are rules and laws that exist on tribal reservations that do not allow for easy prosecution of perpetrators. And so they have found some of those loopholes and they will actively do their terrible, terrible things on places where they have no accountability. And these policies only exist, again, as a result of the colonization and the ongoing violence that is happening against our people. And what it's going to take is major acts of Congress, of legislation, and the continuing work of the grassroots efforts to push this into awareness and to demand accountability. I I mean, I've heard that before where you have this issue of if if a crime happens, you know, on tribal land, on sovereign territory, the state or federal police, it's not in their hands. It happened on sovereign land. And so it's not going to be prosecuted by state police, by county police, by federal police. It just, it goes unnoticed. Well, I'm not a lawyer. I do work with a bunch of them and can just briefly talk to that. Um, And again, it's really looking at these multiple levels of jurisdiction that exist. So for some tribal communities, if there's something that happens on their land, again, it's not the responsibility of the state. It passes to the FBI or the Department of Justice. And we actually find because of what they call lack of resources, that very often they decline to do these prosecutions. They don't show up until three or four days later after the crimes have occurred or they just simply choose not to prosecute. And so because of these levels of jurisdiction, they are creating excuses because that's what they are. It has nothing to do with resources. They are excuses and they hide behind those excuses. And as a result of that, are missing and murdered women, girls. And I'd also like to point out this disproportionately affects even within our community, our trans women. We have to recognize that there is violence specifically against our trans community. And as a result of all of these rules and laws that they hide behind, we're continuing to see this violence perpetuated. So meanwhile, in Canada, Canada's police force has documented that nearly 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, have have been missing or murdered in the last three decades. And others say that that number could actually be as high as 4,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And Canada released a report this year calling it race-based genocide. So a tribe called Red, um, you are based in Canada. What has been the conversation that you've heard around this issue when it comes to Canada? I mean, it's just, it's just as widespread a problem here. And, you know, it goes into things, even you were saying how the numbers are, there's this huge discrepancy in the numbers. And a lot of that is because much in much the same way, these predators have found ways around the laws and how to have these murders not written up as murders and as accidental deaths and all sorts of things like that. All these ways that 
the system has failed to protect these women after even, you know, after the fact in, in the way that things are processed and dealt with, you know, there's an obvious lack of, uh, you know, responsibility, care, care anything, yeah. respect. Yeah. You know, and, uh, for ourselves, the, the best, the best things that we can do as performers, as musicians, uh, and people who are visible is to raise the visibility for, for our community as much as we can. And, and try, try to show ourselves, you know, in a, in a way that is positive, in a way that we, that we see uh, as, a, as a proper representation. And that helps to, to raise awareness for everybody, you know, and start to, start, to, start to make people more accountable who are in power or, you know, in charge of, of uh, you know, bringing these people to justice. A Tribe Called Red, your music has been instrumental in the movement to spread awareness of the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. And your songs have been used in demonstrations. Specifically, your song called The Road was released in support of the Idle No More movement in Canada. And Idle No More was responding to, again, the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. So first, let's just take a quick listen to that song, The Road. So also in 2016, unions in Canada held a performance to honor missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And there was a woman dancing in regalia to your song, Electric Powwow Drum. describe this performance because I watched it online and it was incredibly powerful. So towards the end of the performance, um, this image of a road is projected onto like the back of the stage. Um, And then you see the image of indigenous women standing with red dresses and then you slowly start to see each individual disappear. And then you see actual images of real women and girls who were murdered or have gone missing And then along with the photo of them, you see their name and the age next to them. And the performance ends with this sentence projected on the screen. It says, Indigenous women are seven times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women. Seven times more likely. Because of the power and nature of your music itself, I mean, it might be used as part of this movement just because of how it sounds. But... Was there a specific song you wrote in response to this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? Uh, we, we produced the song Sisters. And that one came out of the fact that we got our powwow track split uh, between like drum tracks and acapella tracks and even the men and the women. We had uh, all these women's voices and you know as a way to kind of to talk about the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls was to make a song for our sisters for for all indigenous women you know just as a way to celebrate our sisters I'm 
I'm speaking with a tribe called Red, as well as Abigail Echo Hawk, Chief Research Officer at the Seattle Indian Health Board, about the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. So, Abigail, can you talk a little bit more about what's being done locally to address this issue? And here in Seattle, we've actually seen some of the most specific action in the United States with a resolution that was recently passed on Monday, introduced and led by an indigenous woman on the Seattle City Council, Councilwoman Deborah Juarez, a Blackfeet tribal member. We worked directly with her on this resolution, and I had the opportunity to give public testimony. And one of the things I started my testimony with was speaking about how in our communities, our women hold such a place. We raise the children. We care for the land. We care for the plant relatives. We care for all of our animal relatives. And we also have a responsibility for the songs. So we sing the songs of our ancestors. We sing those new songs, the ones that build up the strength and beauty of our community and pass on those traditions from one family to the other. And what I talked about specifically is we don't have our women here to sing those songs. Their voice isn't present anymore. And they will be singing those songs again. And we are so lucky to have such an incredible group of musicians and of artists who are singing those songs for our women because their voices are not present anymore. But they're singing those songs for us. And that's when I listened to that sister song. That's what I felt when I heard it, is I heard those songs of those women who haven't been able to sing. And it being led by those and our indigenous men are an incredible part of addressing this epidemic. And so when we hear these songs and we listen to our musicians and our art, whether it be in its most traditional form to its most modern incorporated with traditions, is that those are the songs being sung so that our voices are not silenced anymore and that our women can again sing in the way that we were meant to always be singing. That's beautifully said. That's really beautifully said. And and I think about, you know, A Tribe Called Red, I think the first time that I heard Sisters and heard you music in general, um, you know, I've done a lot of research um, just on, you know, basically, you know, the genocide of, of Native Americans, First Nations, um, and, and how much historical trauma there is and how much culture was lost um, through federal policies along the way. And then to hear your music where you're taking this, tr- you know, traditional powwow and then fusing it with with dance beats like it's almost taking this music and almost bringing it to another generation to make it to to bring it to to new new ears new voices i mean it's taking this music and and empowering it almost to another level when you first started doing this you know fusing dance beats with powwow music i mean that within itself was seemed like a statement but throughout your music um how do you feel like your music is used um, as a form of activism or making a statement? Well, um, I think that, you know, like uh, growing up Indigenous, you're just, or even being born, it's a political statement in itself because we're not even supposed to be here. You know what I mean? So existing has become like a part of that. But also like, I don't, I don't really call myself an activist. Um, it's just more of less like, you know, I'm involved in my community. I'm a very community-minded person, uh, you know, grew up, born and raised on six, uh, you know, um, was involved in, you know, ceremonies or even just community work that's being done around there that's, you know, that it doesn't really get, I guess, recognized. It's, it's, it's something that's, uh, 
you know, that, that could be traded as like education or like a university or whatever, you know, like it's just something that it was carrying on traditions as something that transcended all of that, something that, that that's just been done for thousands of years, you know, growing up that way, that that's, that's the way that I've always saw things. And what do you want people to get out of your music? I mean, who, one, who is your music for? And two, how do you want them to feel or maybe even think when they hear your music? I think we always, we look at everything we do as being very multi-layered and meaning different things and, and even in different situations and contexts, you know, depending who we're playing for, we're trying to get different things across. But I think the overall thing is to represent ourselves in the way that we feel is is necessary, you know, that uh, Indigenous people have never had control of our own image. So to be able to show ourselves to the rest of the world in the way that we exist today becomes really important and really powerful. So we're, we're always trying to, you know, to, to push that idea um, as well as, you know, there, there's many layers to our shows. You know, there's the music, there's the, the dancing and there's the visuals even down to, to, to what our dancers do is really intertwined in that where they, they're doing both, uh, you know, like break dancing and, and house dancing and things like that, as well as uh, powwow dances. And they'll come out in varying mixed degrees of regalia and do dances that are varying degrees of mix between powwow and, and like break dancing, uh, as well as the visuals, which are, misrepresentations of indigenous people through the media that we flip around and you know in some states that when we're talking to an indigenous audience it's showing you know kind of giving a chance to laugh at these images and take the negativity out of them while also confronting our non-indigenous audience with this kind of imagery in a situation where they're not necessarily expecting to get schooled on you know racist imagery <laughs> um uh, so yeah, there's super layers to what we do, but at the you know, at the core of what we do, we're a dance group. So if you come to our show and you dance and you enjoy yourself, that's you know we we've done our job. And if you choose to interact with all the rest of this, well, that's you know we're here for that as well. But one thing that I've found over the years is that as as we've grown and as our our audiences have become more and more mixed. It's really amazing to watch a crowd of, you know, both indigenous and settler people and all types of people in the same room having a common experience through indigenous culture, you know, and living in, in this time where it's so difficult to even begin to have this conversation around any sort of indigenous issue because we lack any, any type of common experience together. So to watch people start to have you know, even just a common experience in a club or at a festival that involves indigenous culture is is starting to build the foundation that we can all start to address these kind of issues together. So, Abigail, when it when it comes to this issue of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, I mean, as you mentioned, Seattle passed a resolution this week to try to address this issue. This comes after Governor Jay Inslee signed a bill in April to hire liaisons and require training on this issue. Um, what are some other steps that need to be taken moving forward to better address this issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls? 
I think where we have to start is exactly what you spoke to earlier, which is the historical trauma. And when we think about historical trauma, that is 30 seconds ago. It's just not 400 years ago. And we have to recognize that this epidemic exists because of the ongoing historical trauma that is happening to our people. And so when we look at what's happening in the United States, specifically in Congress, and then also in states like Washington, we are seeing things, for example, in the U.S. Congress right now, there are pieces of legislation that have not gone anywhere. Why? When we look at states, we are seeing people who are doing things like very token things. For example, in Utah, they passed a, a, a bill that created an awareness day of missing and murdered indigenous women. We are aware. <laughs> Add some resources. Yeah. So when we look at what the state of Washington has done, this is the second piece of legislation that they've passed. The first one was to create a report. The second one was to give two tribal liaison, which was a recognition of feedback that came from our tribal communities. So we now have two people who are going to address missing and murdered indigenous women in the Washington State Patrol for the whole state. Come on. This is a start, and that's what we have to see it as. So when we look at what's going on in the city of Seattle, they've recognized, okay, this is happening in the state, but we also have individual responsibility as a city. And so they have created legislation that, in my perspective, is the strongest that's been passed in the United States, which offers very specific resources. We're going to be looking at the Seattle Police Department's data, doing best practices and how they're capturing information on our people. We are going to have them held accountable by an indigenous woman who sits in a position of power. And so we need more action like that happening across the United States and across Canada. We need real teeth to things. We know that this is happening. And now I think we've gotten to a point where there are a majority of people across the United States are, are seeing what's happening. Now we need to move into action. And that is the work of the grassroots activists and all of those who are pushing for this accountability. We are going to make sure that it happens. And when we when we go back to this report that you did with um, the Seattle Indian Health Board, you know, seeing the numbers and seeing that Seattle is the top of the list um, for murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. Washington State is number two, uh, falling behind New Mexico, correct? Yes. Um, why are the numbers so high in this region? I actually think that that is an absolute undercount of the numbers. Oh, yeah. So we know that because of racial misclassification, and we found that in our report, um, specifically in the city of Seattle, that not all of the deaths or those who've been missing are actually captured. Uh, we were not able, and I say this about the report every single time I talk about it, is the information in it is incorrect in that we were not able to gather all of the information we should have been able to gather to truly know what is happening. So in the city of Seattle and in Washington State, we were able to gather information and take a look exactly on what's happening. We also have to recognize that we are a port city. So we have a lot of sex trafficking that is happening in this community that happens. And we also have a lot of things going on in the eastern side of the mountains. We have a lot of racism and an individual outright racism level that happens more on the eastern side of the mountains. We have perpetrators who have figured out how to get around the laws on the reservations. And we have to go back to the absolute invisibility of our people in these cities. So I would say for many people in Seattle, they're learning for the very first time that maybe there's even Native people here and that we are being killed and being and 
going missing at this level of rates. And so we need to address that visibility. And I think these incredible folks like Tribe Called Red and others who are doing that through different types of art, music, spoken word, whatever it is, they're part of raising that awareness because our art was always part of our culture. And so we cannot move this forward without having the involvement of our people who carry that responsibility to continue on our culture through the arts. Yeah, Tribe Called Red, do you have any um, comments about just the power of, of music spreading a message or, or anything else you want to add on this issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls? Uh, you know, at the very beginning of Tribe, um, it was just it was just power vocals and deep at first. Um, over the years, uh, we've been evolving. And um, when it came down to, like, uh, songs Woodcarver, all the way up to uh, you know what we're doing in the current times, and we just released a song called the OG. And as the minister adds that Canada will not be able to accommodate all Indigenous concerns, what that means is that they have decided to willfully violate their constitutional duties and obligations. Mr. Mr. Speaker, sounds like a most important relationship, doesn't it? Why doesn't the Prime Minister just say the truth and tell the Indigenous people? He doesn't give a f- about their rights. We take our role and what we do very seriously. And uh, any chance that we can get to spread messages and uh, and tell, I guess, our stories and um, let our voice be heard, uh, we get we actually do that. And we do it through all mediums. Sometimes it's like sometimes it's, it's as obvious as, as as a vocal or a poem. Sometimes it's within the actions that we do, um, but you know that's that's something that we've uh, we are we we have been growing to do more, and we're going to continue to do. Well, Tribe Called Red and Abigail Echohawk, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this very serious issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls in Canada and in the U.S. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This is Sound and Vision. So last week, KEXP held a Music Heals Day dedicated to sharing listener stories of how music helped them through bouts of depression or anxiety. And for our next guest, family issues of mental health inspired a song. And a word of caution, this story might not be suitable for sensitive listeners. Hi, my name is Sarah Pumpian. I'm from Seattle, and I go by Zembu. I am human after all. So Human is about the day that my mom jumped off the West Seattle Bridge and died by suicide when I was 15 years old. It's all pain in slow motion Face yourself before words can't be spoken Room sinks in while battling this notion Time holds and I swear it's my fault And it actually walks through what actually happened that day and what that felt like for me, what I heard, what I smelled, what I saw. And ultimately, it's an anthem that we are human after all and that we go through the ups and downs of life and that's okay. And that it's okay to talk about it and seek connection and seek help. 
So the day that I found out, I just had gone into my friend's house in Spokane for spring break of ninth grade, and we were at a humane society of sorts right when we got there. And my mom's cat at the time was was getting really old, and I texted her to ask her if she she wanted one of these kittens I saw, and and I never received a message back from her. And that's where that first line in the song comes from, is a message with no receiver, a message at all. Is a message with no receiver, a message at all. I was rewriting the story when you took the fall. And a few hours later, my friend's dad came up to us and said that we had to go back to Seattle right away uh, because he had to take care of some things and so we ultimately packed up and and headed back to Seattle and during that five-hour car ride um, as we got closer it just became clear in myself that something something was wrong and also that something was wrong with my mom and that's where the knowing on a ride home and knowing without being told comes from a knowing on the ride home and when we pulled up in front of my house my brother and sister's cars were there and they weren't living at home at the time because they were off at college and so it, it was it, it was strange for them to both be home at the same time especially and that's where the unfamiliar colors begging them to be the same comes from unfamiliar colors begging them to be the same i was so ready to take the blame seeing my sister's red car and my brother's white car that weren't usually there in front of the house and the moment that i saw that i i knew that she was gone and i walked into the house and and my family was there uh, to let me know the news. I am human after all. I am human after all. It's all things in slow motion. Face yourself before words can't be spoken. Room sinks in while battling this notion. Time holds, and I swear it's my fault. And how do you tell it? She won't say goodnight. No more simplicity comes in a hunting form. How did this? How did this ever become the no? My hope with human is that it conveys the message that we are human and that is so, so okay. And that's what actually makes us such beautiful people um, going through the ups and downs of life that make us relatable to each other. And really, I hope that human can be a vehicle to help destigmatize suicide and be a voice for mental health. That was Sarah Pompian, who goes by the name Zembu. Here is her song in its entirety. It's called Human.
is a message with no receiver A message at all I was rewriting the story when you took the fall Unfamiliar colors Begging them to be the same I was so ready to take the blame I know one on the ride home I know one without being told I know one to be washed away I know one for my mother's soul Good night, no more simplicity comes in a hunting form. How did this, how did this ever become the no? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if the no was never wrong? And what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? This is Sound and Vision. As I mentioned last Tuesday, KEXP dedicated an entire day to playing requests from listeners and reading their stories about how music helped them through their struggles with mental health. We call that day Music Heals. And I reached out to some of those listeners and had them talk about their stories in their own words. Here are just a few. Hi, uh, my name is Matt. I moved to Seattle from the Midwest uh, six years ago. Originally came here to to be a musician. Um, I have suffered from anxiety uh, and panic for a lot of my life, but growing up in the Midwest, the uh, the attitude is kind of grin and bear it and, and push through it. Um, I, uh, I found whiskey a long time ago, um, and uh, it helped to kind of mass things until it didn't. It also had the, the sad effect of killing my creativity, um, kind of killed my soul. I, uh, I ended up uh, in the UW psych ward 
actually, after having several grand mal panic attacks, one on the way to Capitol Hill and one in my own shower. While I was in the hospital there, there was a guitar and and I kind of picked it up like a foreign object and began to write about what was going on in my head. I began to write about the panic. Every time that I would have a panic attack in the hospital, I would insist on writing. Um, and I wrote this uh, wrote this song called Don't Panic while I was having a really bad panic attack. I continued to play it throughout the hospital every time that I had one, and um, it helped me get through it. And this kind of uh, kick-started everything. I was at, after the hospital, my creativity started to come back little by little. And uh, now I have a band in Seattle, and we we play out, and I, I sing about this kind of stuff. We actually we perform uh, the song that uh, I initially wrote in the hospital, uh, Don't Panic. I can't believe I've gone this far I don't know what I've done wrong Heart explodes, giving up now I can't see you anymore Come on, don't So I'm a mom in Seattle, and I have a story to tell about music. And um, I guess when I, I reflect back on music and the role that it had in parenting my son, who has some pretty serious mental health issues, I, you know, I have to start with well, when he was 12 years old, and he first overdosed trying to end his life. Basically, over the period of about seven years, he spent the equivalent of probably 11 months, you know, in hospitals intensive outpatient programs, inpatient programs, lots of therapy, lots of prescriptions, you name it, and he tried it. But when I reflect on music and the role that music played in his various levels of recovery, I just realized that it provided him such solace to sometimes be uplifted or sometimes to have another person who seemed to speak to him and understand him in a way that maybe sometimes as a mom, I just couldn't or he couldn't see that I could. You know, we had an event about a year and a half ago where one of his close friends actually took his life. He died by suicide. And it shook all of us to our core. We were just so sad. And how my son chose to deal with it in addition to a memorial service and all that was he um, wrote a song about, about his dear friend so, you know, when I would listen to music to comfort me or uplift me or help me just feel sad because I needed to feel sad for a while and kind of get through, you know, there are some songs that spoke to me more than others. And one that really captured it uh, a lot was uh, a song by Seth Walker. It's called Grab a Hold of Me. And basically it's it captured how me as, as a mom who um, was just falling into the depths, how I would do anything to reach down and hope that he would grab a hold of me so that he didn't fall all the way down. And, you know, if, if it ended up that, that we, we both went down together, then so be it. But um, I never wanted him to feel alone. Just grab a hold of me. Grab a hold of me And we'll both go down together 
Hi, I'm Jasmine. I have lived in Redmond for two years, and I have struggled with depression for most of my life. When I was in college is when it was at its worst. I started to have suicidal thoughts frequently, and I'd often be driving along at night down the switchbacks, and I just have this desire to not uh, turn, just end it. Um, but the only thing I could really do at that point was listen to music to distract myself. And the song that stuck with me the most was On Melancholy Hill by Gorillaz. It was a great song, and it, it made me feel like there was something more that I hadn't yet reached. And it got me through to a point where I was able to finally seek uh, therapy. Uh, I was able to get uh, start treatment and uh, medication, but things didn't really fully turn around until my partner helped me realize that there was more to the equation and that the reason I had been struggling with this for so long is that I am transgender. And in finally understanding who I am um, and starting to learn more about who I am, it's it was the final piece of the puzzle for me. And in a lot of ways, uh, the song really saved my life and had helped me get to a point where I was able to become who I am, become an actual person who can be happy. I still struggle with depression, but I, I have hope now. The cold and the suffering My name is Liz Coleman. I live in Seattle. And when I was six months pregnant, I tried to jump out of a moving car. My story of mental illness began before I was ever born. But in that moment, as a soon-to-be mother, carrying a child I didn't believe I deserved, I realized that the demons that were chasing me were stronger than I'd realized. I'd been getting treated for major depression for a decade by this point. But as I was contemplating suicide, I realized that whatever I was doing wasn't working. That instance put me back into therapy with a new doctor who said to me, has anyone ever said to you that you might be bipolar? It turns out that bipolar disorder type two is something that a lot of people don't know about, but it is a form of bipolar disorder that has a lot more depressive episodes than manic episodes. Besides finding a really good therapist and taking care of myself. One thing that's always been there for me as I battled this depression, these, these manic episodes has been music. And I realized now as an adult that the first time music saved my life, I was 16 and Tori Amos singing precious things kept me from harming myself or others. And reflecting back on how many times her music has been there for me, as I've dealt with different challenges, mental health and emotional issues, I can say with all certainty, music, music saved my life.
Thanks to everyone who shared their story. What my co-host and morning DJ John Richards often says here at KEXP, he says, you are not alone. Because we want to normalize these kinds of conversations. If you are struggling with mental health issues, we have a list of resources at kexp.org slash But let's end the show on a lighter note and ask our final question. Why does music matter? Here's what Sassy Black had to say. Music matters because it's waves of energy entering you in a way that you can control. And it signals motions in ways that we can't fathom, right? Like people can break down songs and like elaborate what the hooks are and the chord progressions and stuff like that. But people who can't, can still absorb its power, you know, whether it has lyrical content or it's just an instrumental or a beat or something like that. And that type of energy to be, you know, absorbed and expressed without explanation is special. And there, it's really rare, you know, to have like an audio form that can provide that. And I think music is like the cure to a lot of different things um, and ailments and things like that. And it's been proven to be medicine, you know? So I think it's really rare that an art form can be used in so many different ways to heal, protect, and, you know, invoke emotion. That was Sound and Vision. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Also, our fall fun drive is coming up. It would mean a lot if you helped to financially support this podcast. Consider giving a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening. We'll chat more next week.